Imagine somebody coming forward here at Westside. They wanted to turn from their sins. They believed that Jesus is the Son of God. They wanted to make the good confession. That individual was baptized into Christ. And after the baptism and after, you know, we, we got together and we sang our customary song with the welcome circle and things like that, I walked up to them and said, What shall a man be profited if he should gain the whole world and lose his own soul? What will a man give in exchange for his soul? Matthew sixteen twenty six. You were saved tonight. I think a little something ought to be coming my way. You know, we don't have a lot of patience with that kind of thing. Understandably so. People who sell the gospel on television, they're kind of some of the most low-down scoundrels that you'll ever find. Wouldn't you agree? But it wouldn't be any more right for us to charge people for hearing the gospel and having the opportunity to be saved by it. What would that do to the grace of God? Now this morning we only covered four chapters. Tonight will be a little bit easier. One chapter. Open your Bibles to 2 Kings chapter 5. Because I'd like for us to study grace and disgrace from 2 Kings chapter 5. If you mark in your Bibles or take notes, the first 19 verses of 2 Kings 5, you can write down grace. Verses 20 through 27 of 2 Kings 5, you can write down disgrace. Now, the stories of the Old Testament are far from being dull and lifeless and boring. Therefore, I'll have to work hard to try to make it that. But hopefully, I'll fail. And you'll be able to see the richness of this account as it speaks of God's glorious grace and treating grace disgracefully. God's the God of all grace, 1 Peter 5, 10 through 12. His grace is sufficient. 2 Corinthians 12, 7 through 9. When sin abounds, grace much more abounds. Romans 5, 15 through 21. God is rich in grace. Ephesians 1, 7. You can see it in the New, but my friends, you can see it in the Old Testament too. As we work our way through the 27 verses of 2 Kings chapter 5, here's what I want to do. I want to look at the major characters with you quickly. And then I want to give you a principle about God as seen in the lives of each of the characters that we'll be talking about from 2 Kings 5. Fair enough? That way you'll know exactly how we're going to proceed, and really, it's exactly how the chapter unfolds. Look at 2 Kings chapter 5, and notice verses 1 through 4. 
Here is the first character that I want you to be familiar with. Naaman. Naaman. Here is the principle about God from 2 Kings 5, 1 through 4, Troy, that is really important. God is the God of the great and the small. Of the renowned and the seemingly insignificant. God is a God that is in control of foreign affairs. And He is a God that knows the number of hairs that are on our head. Matthew 10, 29. He is a God of the great and the small. Now look at how the chapter begins. In verses 1 and 2, it's as if Scripture is going overboard to describe how great and how powerful Naaman is. Successful. Powerful. A high up in the government. A general. A commander in the army. A victorious war hero. Leper. Leper. Don't let that fact, that detail, be lost. He has just had a great victory as commander of the Syrian army. This victory comes according to the word of God from Yahweh. From God. We have a God that is concerned about what's going on in the world. The big and the little things. We have a God who's the king. He's sovereign. He really is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Revelation 19 and verse 16. Well, God, if he's concerned about what some Syrian general might be doing in world affairs... Notice verses 3 and 4, and there is a deliberate contrast in one of the raids that they had gone on. An Israelite girl was found. This Israelite girl, we don't know exactly how old she was, but she seems quite young, was taken by Naaman's men to serve Mrs. Naaman, Naaman's wife. You see that? We don't know this little girl's name, but if she's not in the story, she's the second main character that's introduced to us. Naaman, God, is the God of the great and the small. He's the king. Got that principle? This little girl will say at some point, Back in Israel, there's a prophet that can heal Mr. Naaman of his leprosy. Here's the the point about God I want you to get. God often utilizes individuals who make great sacrifices so you can be blessed. God often utilizes people in your life who will make great sacrifices so you can be blessed. Who would deny it? No one could. I wonder if this little girl's mom and dad were dead. 
The Bible doesn't even tell us her name, much less the whereabouts of her parents or even if they're still alive. What about her future? Maybe like many a young person, she had dreams and aspirations and goals. I think that that's probably no longer present. She is going to be working in service to Naaman and his wife. And yet there's still some unbelievable decency and kindness in this young lady because she talks about the fact that there is a prophet in Israel that can do something about Naaman's leprosy. That's the first four verses, and we're getting a lot to think about. Now look at verses 5 through 8, because here's what's happening in 1 through 4 and 5 through 8. They listen to the girl, Naaman, and his wife. I suspect they are at their wit's end, the end of the rope. When you have something wrong, and on more than one occasion here at Westside, I have tried to keep up with all the doctors that you would go to, at least a number of you, trying to find out the nature of the problem and do something about it. And here is a possible solution. Naaman goes to the king of Syria, his boss... They're obviously pretty close. After all, he's a general, a commander, well regarded. And the king writes him a letter and he says, You go to Israel and you give this to the king of Israel. We have foreign business to take care of and we need to get you well. Ten talents. How much silver? 6,000 shekels of gold, 10 changes of clothes. It is a price that would be a king's ransom, we would say, all in the hopes of getting Naaman improved. Well, perhaps. Hoping it seems against hope, but there's somebody, a prophet, who's in Israel that might help. So off goes Naaman. And then we are introduced in verses 5 through 8 to the king. The Bible does not even dignify the king by calling his name. God's people are sometimes pathetic. God's people who ought to be in the know and ought to be willing to help are sometimes pathetic in how unable they are to do anything. His name's not even mentioned. The letter is given him, and he knows drama, evidently. He's given me this letter from the king of Syria and this is going to cause nothing but trouble. Am I God that I should know how this guy who's got leprosy can be healed? He's come in and he has all of the right papers. 
We are going to have an international incident because I don't know how in the world to help this guy. Here's a guy who is the king of Israel, God's people, and he doesn't even know who the prophet is. He wears the name Israelite, but his faith is not in the faith of Israel. His faith is in politics. And so he's pacing the floors. You can almost see it, Adam. Here's the, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? He probably calls in some of his cabinet. What are we going to do? If you can't help me, I'm going to make sure that you don't live very long. This is a major incident. And Elisha the prophet, if you're following along, we've looked at Naaman and something about God. God is the God of the great and the small. We've looked at this little girl who gives the fact, the truth, that there's a prophet in Israel who can help. The truth about God is this. God sometimes provides for us by utilizing people who make great sacrifices to bless us. Then, we deal with the king who's unnamed the king of Israel. Sometimes God's people are pathetic when they ought to be helpful. Now we come to the fourth character, Elisha. Elisha. We really start seeing him. He tells the king, send him to me. He knows that Naaman is there. Elisha says, send Naaman to me. God's ways are sometimes peculiar. God's ways are sometimes peculiar. Here is Naaman and his entourage and all of the wealth that he is willing to give somebody if they can just help me with my disease. I imagine Elisha lived in a posh mansion in the nice part of town, don't you? Here is Naaman, this big Syrian general, going to what we would consider podunk. Maybe the, word, the other side of the tracks or something like that. Whatever your terminology, he's probably going to some place that is far from what he is accustomed. And then... You talk about God's ways are peculiar because they burst our pride. Elisha didn't even come out to meet him. Elisha sends a messenger and says, The master says you can come on in. The response, if we were there, we would have to smile. Doesn't he know who I am? 
This two-bit prophet out of, Eli- out of Israel, Elisha, is making me come to him like this, and then he doesn't even come out to, to give me the, the honor as a general and as a hero that I deserve? Something that I'm really accustomed to? God's ways are peculiar because he will take care of pride quickly. Those that walk in pride, he is able, Daniel chapter 4, to humble, to abase. Nahum is going to learn more about that. But upon coming in and, and, and hearing a little bit more, really what happens is this. Naaman has got the script pretty much already written up. Here's what I think is probably going to happen whenever I encounter this prophet if he's going to do anything for me. Look at verses 9 through 14. Brother Miguel, he's already got something in his mind. He knows how he thinks God is going to handle things. But you know what? God specializes in not handling things exactly all the time the way we think he ought to. Isn't that the truth? And here's one. God's ways are peculiar in that our thought processes sometimes ought to just be thrown aside. I thought this this is how it was going to go. Cody, catch this. Because that's exactly the way it is with the gospel. Sometimes, whenever you start to hear things, the biggest issue you got to deal with is your own personal pride. Guilty of sin. Who, me? I'm not that bad of a person. Guilty of sin. There's none righteous, no, not one. But keep on going, thinking about this. You have the script. Here's what God probably ought to do. Here's what I think God should do. What is told him is wash and be clean. To dip in the Jordan seven times, be clean. But that's not how he's thinking. What about this river? What about that river? Why this one? Why seven? This is the way many people question the gospel. Why not just do what the message from God indicates and be blessed? Now, we've looked at who? Naaman, a young lady, a king who's pretty pathetic in his inability to help somebody that's in dire need. He's thinking about his own problems here and the problems that might be made for him by not being able to handle things. And then we think of Elisha. God sometimes uses peculiar means by man's wisdom. Number five. Look at verses 14 through 19. And the entourage, the servants, plural, that are with Naaman. They interject. If you would have been instructed to do some great or 
wondrous thing, you would have done it in a heartbeat. And he has instructed you, wash and be clean. Why not just do it and see what happens? Here is the principle about God and his grace and how God works. God sometimes uses individuals to bless our lives with God's grace by their words of wisdom and encouragement. We don't even know who these servants were. But Naaman would have remained a leper without their encouragement and concern. When people draw closer to God, it is often due to the fact that there were friends, there were family members who showed concern and encouragement. Sometimes people come to a congregation and they eventually come to Christ and as they're in a congregation, they feel love and concern and a desire by God's people to do what's right and eventually that helps motivate them to come to Jesus. Similar behavior and action motivated these servants in their encouragement of Naaman. Don't miss the point. There had to be a response. There had to be obedience. There had to be a willingness to act upon God's gracious provision of cleansing. This river, seven times, not six, not five, not four, not any other number, but seven times, and to comply with His will. And then the text says, His skin was like that of a baby. The leprosy was gone. Now I suggest that a lot is going on here. And you can see this especially in verses 15 through 19 because five times after he comes up out of that watery grave taking and dipping himself seven times. It's no longer me. He refers to himself five times as your servant. Your servant. There's a change in attitude. Not just that. There's a confession made. I know. I know. I acknowledge freely that God, the God of Israel, is the true God. And then here is Naaman, this great military hero, this man of tremendous ability and giftedness, making this statement. A statement of resolution. He has come with all kinds of loot to give to whoever makes him well. But what he asks for is two mules full of dirt, enough dirt from Israel to take back to Syria. Don't get involved in missing the point here and thinking about how much dirt was that and soil samples. What the point is, is this. 
He knew something had taken place there in Israel, there at that time, there at that occasion. And he wanted a memento to take back home with him that would last him for the rest of his life. And I suspect that he would put that dirt down and that he would pray. He would put that dirt down and he would praise. He would put that dirt down and he would remember. Don't you? And then he says something that reveals his sensitivity. He says, because of my relationship and position in the kingdom, there will be times when I may go to the temple of the Syrian God with the king. And he will bow down. But notice the sensitivity. And think about it, Waylon. When all of that takes place, even when I'm in that pagan temple, I'll know that there's a God in Israel. I'll remember. Now think about this, Jordan. Don't you imagine the king of Syria was going to have some questions to ask one of his cherished servants, a general, a commander, about how he got healed? How did all this happen? And it would be an opportunity to show the reality of Israel's God. Wow. Now you look at 20 through 27, disgrace. We're down to the last character, Gehazi. Gehazi is the servant of Elisha. But when you read verses 20 through 27, a passage that has throughout the chapter to this point been all about God's gracious provision and one's humble response to it, now is disgraceful actions regarding grace. Because here's what happens. Gehazi basically goes to Naaman and says, Hey, where's my money? My, my lord, my, my, my master, Elisha, decided he would take some. Elisha would not take anything. Remember the text? Because God is not like these pagan gods, these idols that could be appeased and could be satisfied by giving some little gift to them. And then what in the world would ever be an appropriate price for being cured from leprosy? Gehazi's got different ideas. Notice from the text that was read in our scripture reading, verse 20 by Wayland. You've got the ethnic slur, this Syrian. This Syrian's been cleansed, and he's not had to do anything for it. But I'm going to take care of these things, this matter. I'm going to go and get money from him. After all, he came prepared to pay. He may as well pay. And I'm going to see to it that he does. So he chases down Naaman, it seems. And Naaman probably thought, just being part of the, of the culture, maybe he, was, he really was representing Elisha's will on this. And he comes to him and says something like this, My Lord's rethought things, and there's a couple of guys coming over to the house, and if you could help out with that, that would really be good. What I want you to understand is this. First of all, he took the Lord's name in vain. He swore by the Lord that he was going to get money. 
That seems to involve covetousness, if I recall the commandments correctly. And then he lies. He's got one whopper after another. Lies. He is given two talents of silver, which would have been enough to go to Lake Granbury and live the rest of his life in luxury. But he's not only given two talents of silver, he's given two changes of clothes. And we're not talking, you know, something, you know, this kind of t-shirt and jeans. We're talking pretty good stuff, you know. Fit for the general who is the king's favorite, a winner. He gets this, and I'm sure gladly from Naaman, even though the thought may have gone through Naaman's mind, I wonder how, why things happen this way. But as he makes his way back, Elisha is wise to what has occurred. Where have you been? Nowhere. Nowhere. I've not been anywhere. Gehazi says. What Elisha says is, I know what you did and you have torn my heart in two by your behavior. How could you have charged that man for what God did? How presumptuous of you to be that full of yourself to charge him for what God did. And because you have attempted to do just that, the leprosy that was Naaman's will be yours for the rest of your days. I'd say that's a story about grace and disgrace, wouldn't you? Let us be careful that we remember that salvation comes from God. And He may use us, much like that young lady and much like the servants of Gehazi, the servants of Naaman rather, to help in the process. But you know what? All praise and all glory belong to God. Let the church say amen. We're about to stand and sing our song of encouragement. I say to you, if you are not in Christ, wash and be clean. The Word of God says, arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord, Acts twenty-two sixteen. You're still saved by the gracious provision of Jesus, but you have to humbly respond believing that God will do what He promises. For those of us who are Christians, every day, let us try to show better to others the amazing grace of God. Maybe you would be like that little girl that points someone to a teacher that teaches them the truth. Maybe you, like the servants of Naaman, can say, hey, why are you thinking about all this stuff? It really doesn't make sense. Why don't you just go ahead and do what God says and see what will happen? It's amazing what God can do in His grace. Let us stand and sing.